This is a non-promotional podcast intended for UK health professionals organised and funded by Bayer. This podcast contains content relating to mental health and suicide. For support with mental health issues, visit the links in the podcast description. Hello, I'm Peter Cackett, and I've teamed up with Bayer to bring to you this podcast, which we have called Eye on the Horizon. In this series, I'll be interviewing doctors and scientists who I think have a really interesting story to tell. And I'm hoping that you will find our discussions thought-provoking as well and make you pause and reflect as you move forward with your own journeys through life. Um, welcome, Pozzers, this inaugural Eye on the Horizon podcast series, generously sponsored by Bayer, where I've been lucky enough to be able to interview someone many of you may have already heard of. Dr. Phil Hammond. Now, Phil studied medicine at Girton College, Cambridge, and St. Thomas's Hospital in London. He's worked in many different roles, including doctor, comedian, broadcaster, and commentator on health issues, a portfolio career in every sense of the word, which we'll come on to later. Not only that, but because he studied at Tommy's, my own alma mater, and coined one of his catchphrases, he's also a bloody good man. So <laughs> welcome, welcome, Phil, to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, so I thought that uh, we'd kick off with uh, with medical comedy. And I remember when I first saw you perform stand-up comedy as a junior doctor in Tommy's Student Bar at the Christmas show, I think, back in 1989 when I was a little medical student. You're showing your age there. That's what, yeah. Um, but I just wondered, how did you first start out in your career in comedy, stand-up comedy? How did that, how did that begin? Well, anyone who's been to medical school has sat through appalling medical reviews. I mean, very funny at the time, if you're a medical student, and they usually had terrible pun names. And so we, Tony and I came up with the idea, struck off and die, um, in the fine tradition of medical puns. But we were slightly different in that we first went to the Edinburgh Fringe when we were already junior doctors. So lots of student reviews would go and they'd, you know, sit on a papier-mâché toilet and sing Flush Gordon. We wanted to do a political show about what it was like being a junior doctor. Back in those days, you'll remember, we worked on average 90 hours a week. Every third week, we work 120 hours, including a continuous 80-hour weekend shift. We earned less than £2 an hour for overtime. And, and so we turned to comedy. We thought, well, you know, we're not going to get a strike ballot, so let's see if we can um, change political thinking through comedy. I don't know whether we did. We had an awful lot of fun doing it, and it both launched our careers. But that was the original intent behind Struck Off and Die. Yeah. And how did... Uh... Oh, no, one thing I always, already won, always wondered was how did you team up with Tony Gardner? Because I remember you were at Thomas and he was at Guy's. How did you get together? Yeah, actually, we've had this house of this. We probably met. Do you remember the old days? They used to have battles. They'd have hospital cup games. And because Guy's hated Thomas's, yeah. if we were playing each other at rugby, not only would there be fighting on the pitch between the rugby teams, there'd be fighting on the touchline. It was appalling behaviour. So I probably met and fought with Tony as a student. But I met him officially as we did house jobs together. My reference to St. Thomas's, unsurprisingly said, this student refuses to take medicine seriously and he does not deserve a St. Thomas's house job. So I had to go to Bristol and Bath to get my house jobs. And Tony, for some reason, hadn't got a job he wanted. So he ended up at French A Hospital too. So we met as house officers. Tony had already been to Edinburgh with medical student reviews. I hadn't, but we sort of hatched this plan to form a double act and go to Edinburgh. So house officer friends we were. Yeah, listening back at it now, it all sounds very professional uh, because <laughs> the, the Radio 4 recordings as well recently, and uh, it, it, you, you seem like already at early stage you were seasoned performers. It must come naturally to you. 
Well, up to a point. I mean, you, you'll know, you'll have met doctors who have appalling self-confidence and not necessarily the competence to go with it. And the, I think the, the, the difficult thing for, for medical humour transi transitioning into the public domain is can you make it relevant to a general audience? And if, if you follow, for example, the comedians are a bit like Russian Doll, so inside me is Adam Kay. Uh, not literally, but we're all a bit like that. I'm inside Graham Chapman and exactly Jonathan Miller, whatever. And making that transition from doing really in-house medical stuff that's a bit shocking and black and bleak to doing humour that has a wider audience so people can bring their grandmother or whatever is, is quite a trick to pull off. And that's what we slowly did over time. But we got we did that through feedback from the audience. People would come up and say, that's okay, but I'm not sure really you should say that uh, in polite company. And um, we wanted, we had that exhibitionist desire to shock, I think, as a lot of comedians do uh, starting out. But yeah, we had a, it was basically getting to know how to perform in front of a public audience. Sure, because I think um, we all recognize that a dark sense of humor is necessary to survive a career in medicine. And a lot of the humor back then, Sucker Die, was quite dark. But is it, has, 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 has things, have things changed nowadays? Is it harder to do that comedy? Has the it's, audience changed? It's interesting. I think you can less do cruel humor about patients. So we used to tell true stories um, about things that people would write in the notes. You can't do that anymore. You can't write NFB, normal for Bridgewater. They used to be pumpkin positive. You shine a pen torch in somebody's head and the whole the mouth and the whole head lights up. That's pumpkin positive. Now, you can't do that anymore, and quite rightly. And I, I think one of the weaknesses of Strzokov and Dice, we slightly undermined our position. We were saying support the junior doctors, but that, and then we said, actually, we're a bit unkind, and sometimes we laugh at patients. And mm -hmm. so that sort of material you can't do. We did jokes about, you know, working 120 hours, and the canteen is never open, and you're starving. And you're patrolling the wards like a gannet, trying to get your hands on any food you can. So the reason we draw the curtains around a patient's bed when they've died is so the doctor can raid the fruit bowl without anybody noticing. I mean, people sort of, you're allowed to get away. And then we would do stupid jokes that just undermine the trust people had in doctors. So that, so I realized after a while that, that Strzokov and I made people laugh, but it wasn't actually going to change anything. Yeah. I have to say, listening to it again recently, it's still just as, as fun as it used to be. And the... Uh... The, the being paged at night for a prescription for paracetamol still brings back PTSD in me, so it triggers it. Right. But it, yeah, it, it, it was very good. So um, uh, moving on, just to discuss your kind of diverse portfolio career, um, you've interestingly remained in medicine, as most comedy doctors end up leaving, such as your friends Adam Kay and Tony Gardner, but you clearly had ability to pursue alternative careers in TV, radios, and author. So uh, I just wondered why you stayed in medicine. Uh, you clearly must have enjoyed your career in medicine. I, I can remember when I started out, there was a St. Thomas's troupe that you again may remember called Instant Sunshine. And they were four doctors plus Miles Kington, who was the, the journalist humorist on the, on the base. And uh, they were at Thomas's and I'd see them perform in the bar. And David Barlow, Peter Christie, Alan Marion Davis, uh, they all said to me, don't give up the day job. You know, you can do this and you can go to the Edinburgh Fringe, as you may find when you go to the Edinburgh Fringe this year. And it all goes really well. And you think, oh, oh, this is my career. But there's something quite special about being a doctor. And yes, it's tough. And yes, it's difficult. And on, on its bad days, it's as bad as anything you can imagine. And on its good days, it's better than any other job you can imagine. And there's something, something I enjoyed over 35 years. I retired at the age of 60 last year. But there's something I really enjoyed. Sitting down in front of someone, them sharing their di most difficult secrets and you trying to sort it out so the reason i didn't give up the day job i used to joke that i needed the material and yes yeah. if you're a private eye journalist and a comedian then medicine gives you a wealth of material but actually i enjoyed yeah. the job and i was lucky to do that and 
I think that's probably the future now. I mean, all the young doctors I talk to now, they all say to me, look, I don't want to give up medicine, but I do want a side hustle or I want to do, how do I get into the media? How do I get into this? And I think it's just a legit, as legitimate use of your time to write a book about ophthalmology or whatever or to do broadcasting as it is to be a doctor. You, you meet far more people, but actually I think it serves a useful purpose if you're true to yourself and you're true to your values. I mean, yes, you can take a big sponsorship and a bung and you know, promote something for money. But, uh, yeah. you know, I think if you're Studio Valley, it's actually quite a useful thing to do. So I would recommend that, but I'd say keep up the day job. Yeah. And so do you think your diverse portfolio has helped you survive your career in medicine as you successfully managed, I guess, to retire without being struck off or having died? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it did. And I, I mean, my guilt thing, one of the reasons I went into medicine is my dad died of 38. He was Australian. He was captain of all Australian universities basketball team. He was a brilliant chemist. He could leap off the ground as if gravity didn't apply. He knew more about science than I ever could. And he died at 38. And I, I was told of a heart attack. And one of the reasons I went into that, because I didn't have any doctors in my family, was to see if I could stop it happening to me. Um, and, uh, when I got to medical school, I suddenly, I thought, gosh, this is just absolutely bonkers. The, the working conditions are really dangerous, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I wasn't sure that I could work full time in medicine. I wasn't sure for my mental health I could. And I found out later that my dad had actually taken his life. I was told that he'd uh, had a heart attack as had two other men in my family. Um, and I mean, that's not an uncommon scenario. You just didn't bring your emotions to work. You didn't talk about your mental health. And there's been a huge shift now. I mean, there are junior doctors now doing podcasts on burnout and saying, hey, look, I suffer from burnout. And you never admitted to any sort of emotional frailty. It just wasn't seen as the done thing. But clearly a job where we take people so young and we give them such huge ethical dilemmas and we make them work so hard doing stuff that's more and more complex. They're going to take a huge emotional hit. Yeah. And and now we got better at talking about it. So I would say that Yes, working part-time helped me. I don't think I could have done full-time frontline medicine. I don't yeah. think general practice is feasible for more than five sessions a week. So uh, I think it's okay to work part-time. It doesn't make you a failure. Yeah. So you think uh, mental health is a, a is less of a taboo subject nowadays, and do you think doctors are more open to talking about it? I, I was just looking uh, online there, and the, the MPS did a survey in 2015 and of over 600 members, and, and it revealed that 85% of experienced mental health issues. Um, it seems extremely high, uh, and it seems like the career in medicine uh, it kind of predisposes or, or makes you vulnerable to that. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because we older doctors um, fall into the trap of saying, oh, the young doctors, they're not as resilient as we were. We used to work 120 hours a day, never did me any harm. And you look at these bigots and think, well, hang on, you might have been better off easing off a bit. So, yes, I think it is easier to talk about. And B, there are services available now. I was talking to Claire Girarda the other day who set up support for doctors. And she said she's had 25,000 mm. doctors through the doors. And yeah. most of them, to be fair, with treatment and support, get back to work. So that's the good news. Yeah. But I was saying to her, what is it that younger doctors, particularly now, are finding so stressful? And she said there are all sorts of things, worries about competence, et cetera, overwork. But one is the lack of autonomy, which I think I'm partly responsible for. All the young trainees I talk to now, A, they're frightened of being sued, et cetera, and all the extra paperwork. But they say, I'm not getting the hands-on experience. It's not fair. Ironically, some of them are having to go to other countries to finish their training. So I think one of the reasons they're feeling so stressed is they can't. They're not getting the experience. They don't have the role. They're not getting the respect that they yeah. need to do their job properly. Yeah. And then there's also, as as we've seen, the... Uh, 
increased likelihood of being referred to the GMC and yeah. likelihood of being sued, which is you know has has increased significantly over the last three decades since we were junior doctors. So I guess that might be partly to blame as well. I think it is. I was speaking to Jeremy Hunt, bless him, the other day, who's, who's in favour of no fault compensation. Um, but you know the the stuff I did when I moved on from comedy and I started doing Private Eye and then I presented yeah. a program on BBC called Trust Me, I'm a Doctor. We took quite a consumerist view. We said patients should learn as much about their condition as they could. They should challenge doctors. They should ask a surgeon, how many of these operations do you do? What are your results? How do you compare to the national average? Is there someone in this hospital or nearby who gets better results than you can? I mean, very few British patients have the balls to actually do that because it seems slightly rude, doesn't it, to question your yeah. surgeon's competence. You better go under the knife. But we encouraged this consumerism. We encouraged people to, to read the nice guidelines and to demand medical excellence. And in essence, in a sense, part of my journalism and journalism generally has raised expectations beyond which the service can deliver. Yeah. So people are thinking we're putting 160 billion into the NHS. I should yeah. be able to see my GP tomorrow. I should be able to get excellent care immediately. And half the time you get good enough care. It's not incompetent, yeah. but it's just good enough. Um, and yet yeah. people complain more and more. I think that's true. I think people have expectations, especially with surgical outcomes now compared with you know, 30 years ago. Um, and that uh, increased expectation puts pressure on, pressure on doctors as well. To, to have you forward. stopped? Have you stopped doing any surgery that you used to do because of patient expectation, or worried about having you know having to be competent and do enough of it? Yeah, well, I I, I did used to do cataract surgery about four years ago, and and stopped stopped for various reasons. But part of the problem is is expectations very high, and it you you do need uh, some element of resilience to cope with uh, with complications, and it's how you deal with it because there's a lot of rumination afterwards about what you could have done better and um, and, and patients do expect perfect outcomes all the time now it seems and um, are you a perfectionist yourself so if something didn't go quite right would you then take that home with you and ruminate and worry about it or do yeah, you think, I think i've done yeah. my best that's all i could do no exactly i think um uh, that's probably a better way of survival to think that i did my best and you know mm. but that you do or if you have a complication you do take that home and and question it, well, what you could have done better, and um, and you do worry about the patient's outcome uh, following complications. So, I think that that takes its toll as well. I was listening to, uh, I'm doing this thing on Radio Four called it's called How I Ruined Medicine, and it's like half-hearted looking at my career. I hate the phrase "do no harm" because clearly yeah. everything a doctor does has the potential to cause harm. So, basically, you're trying to think: can I do more good than harm in an individual procedure over my career? And I worry a bit over the career that I've done a bit more harm. And the biggest thing I did is, uh, uh, thanks to a very brave whistleblower called Steve Bolson, I, I helped expose the Bristol Heart scandal. Yeah. And of course, it led to this big public inquiry, 195 recommendations, NICE was born, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, the various iterations of the Care Quality Commission, mandatory training, appraisal, revalidation, all those things. But there's an old surgeon, an old cardiac surgeon, and he said, it's ruined cardiac surgery. Nobody wants to do high-risk operations anymore. Very few British surgeons want to do cardiac surgery. Most of them are coming training from overseas. You know, this scrutiny where you have to publish your results. I mean, you try to obviously correct for people who do harder operations on sicker people. But this constant level of scrutiny also means that the consultants don't want the trainees to have a go because they're worried that yeah. will reflect badly on their figures. Is that the same in, in it, ophthalmology? It is, and definitely in cataract surgery, uh, people are less inclined to operate on the high-risk cases because it affects mm. their surgical outcomes and their annual appraisal as well. Um, oh. And uh, so, uh, and, and again, trainees are getting less experience because um, there are 
uh, you know, they won't they won't be allowed to to try and more harder cases. So they have to look for easier cases. And a lot of easier cases go to, uh, to treatment centres uh, for private mm. violence. Yeah. So uh, can you see? Is there any way of taking back a bit of control of the pendulum? You know, the pendulum's clearly was over there, and that was ridiculous. And now it's over there. Are you optimistic we can get the pendulum back in the centre? I'm 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 hopeful. The, the problem I I perceive at the moment as well is that we um we have this. Uh, drive to to uh, and and guidelines to perform to a gold standard but we don't have the resources to do that uh and with with you know with the capacity problems we've got and, and limited uh budgets uh but the guidelines all tell us how we should uh you know, treat within a certain time period and uh, treat regularly but we don't have the resources to do that and that i think that takes its toll on doctors as well because as doctors we want to provide the best possible outcomes the best possible treatments but we don't have the Resources at our disposal, unless you're working in private practice and you can you can see your your patients when you want to. Yeah, you think you know we can say Ooh, it was better in the old days. Think of the amazing um, innovations and improvements there've been in medicine over the last thirty years. Fabulous stuff in your particular field, in every particular field, whether you've got yeah. you know and rheumatoid arthritis or whatever. And yet, with every new development. Because of the need for informed consent. Now, in the old days, we just said, oh, sign here, blah, blah, blah. Nowadays, you need benefits, risks, alternatives, unknowns. What if you did nothing? What's the safety net? So the communication issue is huge. Uh, and that needs even more staff. And the staff are saying, well, I can't work full time. So although we've got these amazing innovations, we don't have the manpower or the workforce to be able to introduce them all in a safe and equitable way. So as you say, they just filter out to private clinics where people have more time and more money. But that just means, you know, that's against the founding principles of the NHS. So with every success, there's the drawback of needing the staff to to deliver it. Yeah. And for a multiple, multiple, multitude of reasons recently, we've got a workforce problem with uh, doctors retiring early or, yeah. uh, or leaving the professional or leaving the country um, and nursing staff as well. So uh, it seems that that uh, that needs to be addressed. And I think the well-being of, of everyone in the NHS needs to be addressed to try and uh, keep it on its uh on a steady footing, really. I think was there used to be lots of pat little phrases around, like patients first. And, you know, there seems every time there's a problem, we sort of focus on the patient and the waiting list. But you forget that the NHS is essentially a partnership between the staff uh, and the patients. And actually, if we're going to rebuild it, we have to focus on those relationships. If you want a better health service, you have to look after the people working in it. And it's still as important now as it ever was, unless... Yeah. You make the NHS a great place to work. I mean, it's always going to be sad when somebody young dies or there's a stabbing or whatever. Yeah. But unless you make it a great place to work, uh, you're not going to retain your staff and the whole thing will collapse like a souffle. Well, that's right. As I was looking at, uh, when we were junior doctors as well, we did have active doctor's messes. We had accommodation stay when we were on call. And we thought the future looked as it was going to be very bright. Um, we could but, drink uh, on call. Do you remember that? Were you allowed to drink on call or did you miss out on that? I think I might have just missed out on that. There's a great book called Fragile Lives. Stephen Westerby, the heart surgeon I spoke about, wrote a book called Fragile Lives, and he talks about training in the 70s. Uh, and this is a real quote from his book, Brompton Hospital. He was in the pub on call, and he got called in for an emergency repair at the Brompton of an aortic tear. And they'd all had a few pints, but that was normal. He said, what you weren't allowed to do, it was okay to turn up having had a few pints, but what you weren't allowed to do was to leave the operating theatre for a wee, because then the professor would laugh at you or the consultant. Yeah. So he sort of mock catheterized himself with a bit of rubber tubing and fed it down into his surgical booze and sort of squelched along to the operation as if it was the most fun in the world. I mean, that's what medicine used to be. No accountability, no scrutiny, but lots of experience. Um, 
And those messes, I remember having great, you know, you would have a really difficult night and you come in and your mates would be around the pool table and you could get taken pizza or whatever. That made a huge difference. Team working and having a mess around you and the morale to boost you. Yeah. So we need to bring some of that as well, I think. Um, I remember uh, in a department I used to work in that one of the consultants used to have a slip lamp on the, uh, have a cigarette uh, ashtray on the slip lamp. (laughs) (laughs) Right Graham Garden, the, the goodies, the chap in the goodies, uh, who was also a doctor, he never quite qualified, so never finished my house jobs. But he was saying, I think it was at George's in the 60s, the nurse, one of the nurses used to follow the professor around on the ward round with an ashtray, and he'd be smoking and putting it in the ashtray whilst lecturing the patients on not smoking. So basically, I, you know, the sign, I'm just a signpost. You don't tell the signpost what to do. So yeah, all that sort of stuff. Um, oh. you obviously you don't want to bring all of it back, but it's, it's the fact that, um, you don't know people's names. I, I, in my last hospital I worked in before I retired, the Royal United in Bath, you know, I knew a few people's names, but often you'd walk around the corridor. There wouldn't be eye contact. People looked a little bit sort of isolated and disillusioned. I mean, we weren't yeah. coming out of a pandemic, which is fair enough, but I think, you know, just checking in on the mental health of your colleagues, looking them in the eye and say, how are you today? And meaning it. And yeah. if, if they say, because the British thing is, everything's fine. But if they say, well, actually, things are awful. My husband's left me. My cat's got run over or whatever. You take the time to just have a little bit of a listen. And we're not very good at checking in on each other, I don't think. Yeah. Have you got any other tips, going back to mental health, have you got any other tips for uh, dealing with mental health issues? I think um mentioned a large gin and tonic or... Um, I uh, don't, actually. I mean, I think, I think alcohol's really dangerous. And alcohol's yeah. really dangerous, particularly... Uh, once you've retired, I always to get my audiences, I make them hold hands and repeat after me. I pledge to pleasure myself in a safe and sustainable way because um, uh, it's very easy to overdo the pleasure. I think, I mean, the whole healthy mind, healthy body thing is interesting. I yeah. know that when I'm got a mental block or I'm feeling a bit anxious or things aren't right, I go out with the dogs. I mean, A, yeah. for me, because I'm a doggy person, I will have a dog cuddle every day. I'll get down with these one smelly Labrador and a golden doodle and we'll swap germs, um, and then I'll go and walk with them. And it's just the most, because you're outdoors, you've got the blue sky, you've got the green fields, you've got the company of your dogs, other dog walkers you meet are friendly. I find physical exercise breaks the cycle of doom and gloom um, better than just about everything else. But But the bottom line, of course, is to get help. I remember when I found out about my dad taking his life, I wrote about it initially, actually, in the Nursing Times, and I've got this lovely bloke who wrote to me who said, yeah, I get terrible depression. I get suicidal thoughts every day. And he said, it's like a little gremlin that lives at the bottom of the garden. And yeah. most days I can keep him in his box. And sometimes a little bugger crawls up the garden, the garden crawls inside my head and says, you're useless. There's no point being here. You might as well end it all. Your friends and family won't miss you. And he said, the one thing I learned is that the voices go after a while. Yeah. And he said, the one thing my therapist taught me um, is delay tactics until the suicidal thoughts go. So what she said is you need to go down, you make a list of 10 things you do before you listen to your thoughts. So one might be walk the dogs. One might be listen to a favorite piece of music. One might be go to Starbucks, get your favorite coffee and whatever. And he said, I've never got past number four or five on the list before yeah. the thoughts have gone. Yeah. And, and some people, when they get suicidal thoughts, and I suspect my dad was like this, they're so strong and overwhelming at the time. They're really yeah. difficult the counter and you need something you need a strategy to flip you out of that and other people need to learn strategies if they know that you're suffering from your mental health yeah i think that's absolutely right i think delaying uh uh seeking help is the worst thing you can do because i remember uh when i had problems myself um 
I was worried about the stigma associated with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I didn't want to seek any attention or didn't want to sort it out. And, uh, and, that, and that's just kicking the can down the road. And I think you're absolutely right. You need to not worry about things like that. And just did, did that mean that you delayed personally seeking help? I did, yeah, yeah, and and I was worried what the GP would think or what colleagues would think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and what worked for you? Because obviously you're back in reasonable health now. Would you say mentally you're in a reasonable yeah, place? Yeah, yeah. 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 And what yeah. what do you think worked for you when you analyse it? What helped you get better? I think uh, at the time, just as you said, exercise um, uh, and talking to people. Uh, uh, I remember I spoke to an occupational therapist at the time. What I could change about my life. Uh, I realised that one of the precipitating factors was the the constant stress of cataract surgery and. Um, Training juniors is very stressful as well because you're responsible for their outcomes. As, and um, yeah. and uh, and uh, I realized that although I really enjoyed cataract surgery, um, I felt I was good at it. It was one thing that had to go because I wanted to protect myself for the future. There's plenty of, plenty of other things to do in ophthalmology apart from cataract surgery. I think, yeah, I mean, the, although I've made a career out of highlighting dodgy doctoring, the vast majority of doctors are really decent, kind people, almost to the wrong extreme. They're people pleasers. They're desperate to please. They're desperate to do well. And often you have an idealized view during your training of what it'll be like working in the NHS. You think, oh, it'll be wonderful. I'll be able to deliver first class care all the time. And you get there and sometimes you're delivering substandard care. And for a lot of people who are perfectionists and people pleasers, that's really difficult, which is why... You know, the ability to say no, the ability to accept that you've done a good enough job rather than a brilliant job, the ability to say, well, look, I am going to get complaints because that's the nature of it now. I'm going to make sure my insurance or whatever it is is up to date and I'm going to do my best. I'll make good notes, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. But that's all I can do yeah. is is really, really important. And, and you know, we we there was one argument. Adam Kay made it. I was talking to Adam Kay about why he dropped out of medicine. And, and he said, I, I think I was too young. At the time, we take people at 18, 19, 20 or whatever, yeah. and we, we give them these really difficult ethical, ethical dilemmas. There, there is an argument. Obviously, you get less years out of them, but there is an argument of making medicine a postgraduate thing like they do in America. So at least you've got some experience of the outside world, which will embolden you to speak up about safety issues and things along the way. And, and maybe maybe we do train doctors too young in this country. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that medicine does seem to attract uh, perfectionists. Yeah. Those I would say, in fact, just trying to achieve as much as they can. Although they now say the government says that they're going to introduce an apprenticeship scheme where I don't, I can't figure it out. You either don't go to medical school or, or they pay you on the job while you're training or something. They're trying to yeah. widen. I mean, it sort of half makes sense and half I'm a bit worried about it because yeah. you know the doctors today say I'm not getting enough training. So how we can suddenly shoot one in yeah. loads more people to train? I don't know. I know, and that's one of the problems at the moment because they want to increase medical student numbers significantly. But on the front line in the, in the wards and outpatient departments, there isn't the ability or time to teach the medical students now because no. there's capacity issues, and that and that has an in, teaching students has an impact on capacity, and uh, we don't have the time. So to hopefully, uh, in some way, that will be addressed. So uh, moving on as well to talk about your journalism, uh, I think you've had a, obviously had a successful career in journalism, writing your regular medicine balls column for Private Eye. So what motivated you to get involved in this uh, investigative journalism as well? Was it the Bristol? Uh... It, it was part. It was partly that. Um, I, it's interesting because I didn't have any docs in my family. My heroes, to be honest, were all brilliant Australian migrant men who reminded me a bit of my dad. Uh, so Clive James, the brilliant broadcaster and writer, um, John Pilger, fearless uh, journalist and broadcaster, and, of course, Barry Humphreys, the subversive yeah. comedian. So. Yeah. 
in my mind, I always had this view that, yeah, I ought to be a doctor to try and stop myself dying at 38, but maybe I could also be a comedian, journalist, broadcaster. So I always thought I might juggle these careers. And then medicine, as soon as we started highlighting some serious stuff in Struck Up and Die, and I thought, actually, to change it, you need to be more serious. Yeah. Um, and uh, I spotted Ian Hislop at the BBC Light Entertainment Christmas Party in 1991 and followed him into the toilet. Uh, and he was the new editor of Private Eye. And I said, can I have a column in Private Eye? And he said, do you mind not standing so close to me? So I stepped a few steps sizes and I said, can I have a column? And he gave me a provisional column. And I initially started about writing about junior doctor's issues. Um, yeah. And then I wrote about the Bristol Heart Scandal because we had that information. Um, yeah. If I have a regret about it, I, th I think you need to uncover stuff that isn't quite right in any system. I think my regret is the way that I did it. So as a young journalist without any training and, and probably in the style of private eye, I expose these stories in a really aggressive name, shame, blamey type way. Whereas I think actually how you raise concerns is as important as the concerns that you're raising. So I think probably if I had my time again, I might try to do it in a more constructive way. People yeah. didn't take much notice of me. It was only in when Steve Bolson came out publicly and said, this is a problem. Um, but but as my journalism has progressed over the years, and particularly during the pandemic, I've become much more full of doubt. Um, I've quite enjoyed doubt, actually. You know, we've got a new yeah. virus and a new pandemic. Nobody really knows what's going to happen. And we all yeah. pretend, because you have to pretend as an advisor or politician, you know what's happening. But the honest answer is we've never seen this virus before. We didn't really know how it's going to behave. Exactly. People suddenly, didn't they? they? They suddenly went into one camp or the other. Well, I'm pro-lockdown or anti-lockdown, this or I'm that. And the truth was, we don't know. We may get some evidence to show that that lockdown was a bad idea, or we may have evidence to show that we could have done it voluntarily. We didn't have to yeah. mandate it. I mean, there were all sorts of complex arguments, and yet people are, I'm in that camp, and I'm only going to select evidence that supports my view, and I'm not listening to you. It's really unscientific, although yeah. we claim to follow the science. So so my best journalism, I think, has been the private eye, um, the COVID casebook that I did in my private yeah. eye columns, because half the time I say I don't know, or I'd yeah. correct myself previously, because I'd say, actually, I was wrong about that, and the evidence has changed. And, and that was actually quite refreshing. Yeah. So I, I thought we could briefly touch on the, um, the whistleblowing aspect as well, because I think you uh, uh, had a campaign with Shoot the Messenger and Treatment of NHS Whistleblowers. Um, and I wondered, was a private eye a good way to blow the whistle yourself with some amount yeah. of protection? Because it seems like even whistleblowing nowadays, you kind of end up getting shot. So the, the secret with whistleblowing is either to do it in numbers. So in a sense, you could say that the the junior doctors' political disputes with the government are a form of mass whistleblowing. They're getting together and they're saying on mass, our pain conditions aren't safe or aren't proper or whatever. If you do it as an individual you're very easily to be isolated. And the only way to really make it work is to get a local MP or a local journalist or somebody on your side. Writing in private eye, Ian Hislop insisted I write under a pseudonym. I wanted to write under my own name because I think you should own what you write. And he said, no, I've had so many professionals writing this newspaper who've been destroyed by their professions for blowing the whistle on law or agriculture yeah. or politics. So I insist you write under a pseudonym MD. But then I outed myself after the Bristol inquiry. I thought, well, this is, you know, nobody took any notice i may be called to give evidence so in 1995 i said i'm md in private eye and everybody knew about it yeah. um as far as the, my more commonly i'm an ad i'm an advocate for other whistleblowers so almost like a go-between i'll say look if you want to break some news about what's happening in your hospital and you don't think it's safe or you've tried going through the correct channels i can guarantee you that we won't reveal you as a source i will let you read the column to make sure that you're happy with it 
but you must accept the fact that they will still try and hunt you down. Yeah. And the the commonest tactic they use, which is really dismaying, is that they they turn it into an employment dispute. So say you were you were complaining about a surgeon or you were raising concerns about a surgeon who was getting very poor results for this cataracts or whatever. And they would say, that's actually because you have a personality issue with him and you're not a team player. So yeah. this is an employment issue. So it gets accelerated to employment tribunal. And then you'll get put on the stand at the tribunal and they say, Un under oath, you'll be asked, are you a source for private eye? Now, either you're going to say no and lie or you're going to say yes. And that, that nearly always means they say, well, you've contravened our internal whistleblowing policies. Yeah. So it's very hard. I haven't found a way of absolutely protecting whistleblowers. I, I've, I've acted on their stories and probably improved the NHS as a result. Yeah. But rarely have I said a whistleblower has won. They usually end up leaving their place of, place of work. Is there any one story that you burn whistle on that you think that changed things better for either patients or for conditions for doctors? Is there anything that stands out in your mind? I mean, the the, the big one was... Bristol was through it, multiple sources gave me that information. Um, the thing is, you never. It's interesting as a as a journalist, I'm not obsessed with breaking the story. So journalists always say, "Oh, I broke that. I'm going to get yeah, an award yeah. for breaking a story." For me, I'm more interested in the outcome. Yeah, it's no point for me in breaking a story about something if it makes things worse. Right. So Bristol, interestingly, if you talk to Steve Bolson now, the Bristol main Bristol whistleblower, he will say the Bristol inquiry did huge amount of good it ushered in an era of clinical governance patient safety quality care thousands of lives have been saved as a result and and etc so that's his argument others would say the pendulum has completely swung the other way the gmc are now suspending people over arguments over laptops or whatever yeah. or and i think what's difficult about litigation and the gmc is that when mistakes happen they have to reduce it to blaming it on individuals. So to get negligence claim, you have to blame what is often a complex system error on an individual. Mm -hmm. So I think in all these cases, you can rarely say it's changed everything. It's like any drug, you know, yeah. whistleblowing it. There'll be pros and there'll be benefits. Um, and so there, yeah, I, there are a number of things that I've done. I, I think what I did on Trust Me, I'm a Doctor uh, when I was a, a broadcaster is that uh, Michael Mosley, who was a former doctor, was chair of it. And we had really good science journalists as researchers. And in the run-up to Bristol, we found huge variations in care in cleft lip and palate surgery, in biliary surgery, uh, in breast cancer surgery. Um, in general practice, we found people doing amniocentesis blind without ultrasound guidance and sticking the needle straight into the brain. We found people doing electroconvulsive therapy for the first time unsupervised. And so we were able to mount a case by saying poor quality care is right across the NHS. It's not necessarily an individual's fault. But don't just have an inquiry looking at what happened in one surgical unit in Bristol. Let's have an inquiry into how we can stop appalling variations in care across the NHS. And and it may be that the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence and the Care Quality Commission, uh, we don't like them necessarily always, but probably yeah. they've done more good than harm by yeah. calling out bad practice. Because if you don't call it out, then it's going to remain covered up. Well, it does seem like things have changed because... When we were younger, it was see one, do one, teach one. And that yeah. seems to have gone now. Yeah. It it does. But yeah, as you say, there's pendulums and pendulums. And if it's gone yeah. so far that, no, Henry Henry Marsh, the neurosurgeon, still goes to meetings, I think probably at St. George's. And he said he was at one the other day and there was a really complex case came in. And he said, in my day, I'd absolutely love to take on that case because I'm, you know, I'm not exactly risk averse. That's why I became a neurosurgeon. And he mm -hmm. said, none of the younger surgeons wanted to take it on because they were worried that if they fail, they'd be top of the death league table. So it, it swings and roundabouts. And, and yeah, uh, 
I, th I think we need to recognize that, that there's no such thing as zero harm and there's no such thing as pure benefit. Yeah. So reflecting on your career in medicine, uh, what do you think you enjoyed most about your career? I think, because I mean, I mainly went, I did 20 odd years as general practice and I did yeah. five years in sexual health and I did 11 years in pediatric chronic fatigue, which was a much misunderstood area, ME, CFS, long COVID. Yeah. The thing I enjoyed most was building relationships with patients. I'm I'm a community doctor in essence. I, I think medicine is as much relational as it is medicational. Mm -hmm. So the bits that I enjoy was building up a relationship with a patient. Um, and in the, the chronic fatigue service, a rather visionary consultant managed to negotiate in 30-minute consultations, an hour consultations, or 90 minutes for the really complex ones. Brilliant. And I love that. Yeah. Some people would think, oh, I can't, you know, I can't sit in a room for more than six minutes with a patient. What would you say? And me, because I can, you know talk for Britain and and listen. I can even listen at some stage. Um, I used to love that because you'd really get a sense of listening to the patient and acknowledging their difficulties and not always having a solution. So yeah, the the importance of the, the doctor-patient relationship, and that's how I would rebuild the NHS. I would give everyone more time to spend with patients. You know, the, the reason a lot of my friends now say I do private medicine is not money. It's because I have more time to practice the kind of medicine that I want to, I went into medicine to do, and that actually is involved around relationships, listening to people, serving people. That's what we need to get back to. Yeah. Would you choose medicine again uh, as a career, looking back? Uh, I, I don't regret it. Yeah. Um, had I known the truth about my dad early on, I don't know. I can remember my mum, and my mum was a teacher, and she, she didn't tell me about my dad with all the best intentions because there were three men in our family who'd taken their lives and she didn't want to suggest a route for my brother and I when we were younger so I absolutely get that um had I known that truth would I have gone into something that has such high levels of stress and alcoholism or whatever I don't know uh I don't regret it at all yeah and I was talking to Tony the other day I'm still in touch with Tony Gardner who is appearing in um accidental death of an anarchist if you're ever London based he's in the yeah. West End so Tony my comedy partner had a very successful acting career and we were talking about whether Strachman died, changed anything, and he said, well, I don't know, but it really launched our careers. Um, yeah. So actually, I don't regret anything I did. I, I would probably still do medicine again, but I would imagine I would do other things too. I would do journalism, whatever, because it's all about journalism and comedy and medicine are all about truth-seeking. Um, right. uh, and you can tell the truth and explain the truth in different ways. So I would probably still be a portfolio doctor, but yeah. I would still do medicine. Yeah. Uh Maybe a difficult question. Do you think the NHS is in a better place now than when you entered as a houseman back in the late 80s? Is it? It's difficult because my natural mindset, because of private eye and I don't know, maybe in my family history, is often to accentuate the negative, which is often what satire does. But if you step yeah. back mm -hmm. and you look about the extraordinary advances, you would say undoubtedly, therapeutically, yeah. uh, the, the tools available to us are amazing and fair play to nice. They tend to approve most of them. They, you know, yeah. The pharmaceutical industry will probably say, well, the some of them they don't, but they approve most of them. So the options available to us are beyond. Uh, we clearly, apart from the little dip post pandemic, life expectancy went up and up and up and then hit the buffers with austerity and has gone down a bit, but generally people are living longer. Yeah. I think the reason the NHS is struggling, yes, it's people living longer, but we, we haven't cracked public health. So we haven't invested in, Instead of pulling people out of the river of illness, we need to invest in wandering upstream and stopping them falling in in the first place. Uh, mm -hmm. And actually, I do a lot of that. Have you heard? Of, have, I, have you heard of my clangers? No, I haven't. No. Clangers. Uh, I was slightly obsessed with the clangers as a child because they lived this yeah. lovely idyllic existence on the blue. Yeah. 
Um, but I, when I worked in PEDS, I used Clangers as an acronym to teach people the fundamental joys of health. And Clangers stands for connect, learn, be active, notice, give back, eat well, relax, sleep. It's genius, isn't it? Connect, it, learn, be active, yeah. notice, give back, eat well, relax, sleep. So when I talk to people about health, I say, have you done their clangers? And connection, human beings are social animals. We exist to build yeah. part of something bigger. And and what really mucked us up in the pandemic was disconnection. We frightened the pants off everyone. Yeah. Yeah. And then we sent them home to isolate, which doubles the fear. Yeah. So reconnection, we know that loneliness is as bad for you as 15 cigarettes a day. Learning, if I was going to invest in anything, I'd probably put money in, in schools and, and homes before I put them in hospitals, that upstream stuff. A good home environment, a good school environment, being physically active taking time to appreciate the beauty of the world around you, giving back to others less fortunate, eating food that's delicious and nutritious, um, yeah. relaxing at the end of the day and re reliving the high points, and then prioritizing at least six hours and preferably eight hours sleep. Now, for me, in my quaint little North Somerset existence, easy for me to do my clangers. If you're living yeah. with debt, depression, dementia, domestic abuse, diabetic yeah. retinopathy, try and do your daily clangers. It's bloody hard. So my politically, I would say... the. If we want to improve healthcare long term, we need a big clangers for all thing. We need to go out into communities. And a, a friend of mine is doing lung cancer screening in Hull at the moment. Yeah. And he said quite extreme because he comes from near Bath and they see a little bit of interstitial lung disease and a little bit of this and that. And he said in Hull, they, they see these scans and some people have got cancer, but they've got terrible lung disease. They've got lungs or no lungs. Yeah. And it's not until you work in really deprived areas, you realize the burden of preventable disease if people had were able to do their daily clangers. And it's not a case of shouting at people for being obese or shouting at people for smoking. It's a case of getting into schools early and educating people and then assisting them in leading decent, healthy lives. And that's that's we need to do that to save the NHS because absolutely no way the NHS can survive with the current levels of health inequality and more mm. levels of public health. So, yes, treatments have improved, but public health hasn't. Mm -hmm. And I guess it needs to survive with the staff. And I guess we've touched on this earlier um but has the practice of medicine uh is that in a better place now than at the start of your career because i know you had the show recently edinburgh Fringe called how i ruined medicine yeah i but, but I, do, you, do you think do you think working as a doctor is better now than it was i know it, i think it's hard oh, i think i think we're kinder to patients now yeah and probably less kind to staff i think again the pendulum has you know we don't write and say those disparaging things about patients now um yeah. and, and that's a good thing but I think it's unbelievably complex and and we don't give uh, all NHS staff, we don't give them the credit. I'd say respect. That sounds a bit deferential. We don't give people the credit for how difficult a job it is. Yeah. It is an unbelievably difficult job, but all the jobs worth doing are difficult. If you want to look back on your life and say, I lived a decent life with some purpose yeah. uh, and I changed things, I didn't universally cure everything, but I changed a few things, then those are the difficult jobs. So. It's really hard, but we need to swing. And, and I think as a profession, we're powerful, articulate people. We need to take back control a bit. We need to be shouting from the rooftops, which is why, actually, I'm quite proud of yeah. junior doctors and consultants and probably GPs down the line that they're speaking up and saying, you yeah. know, this is the nature of their job. You you give us the resources and, and, mm -hmm. and give us the credit for how difficult our job is. Mm -hmm. And I guess with your voice as a journalist still out there, it's still... Uh, you can promote these things as well. Well, I am. I'm better. I sort of switch. See, I swung as a pendulum from from defending junior doctors to protecting patients to actually 
protecting the doctor-patient relationship. Actually, you know, you can't swing one or the other. We need to think the doctor-patient relationship is the fundamental unit that we need to protect. And that means supporting patients and supporting staff at the same time. Yeah. And uh, what do you think, uh, as we're rounding off, what do you think the meaning to life is? Is there any... It's a hard one. I think... uh, simplistically i think we exist to love and be loved i think that's very important if you have love in your life it's a lot easier um my old uh, gp was a lovely old gp called brian and he came from a sink estate he was a yorkshireman quite rare back in those days when most doctors were public school Uh, every time he used to make a mistake he used to put his arm around my shoulder and go don't worry phil a medical degree is no substitute for clairvoyance Uh, which is not so funny when it's read out in court but it was quite useful but his favorite one was do you know what the most powerful drug in the world is? You go, it's kindness. It works for absolutely everyone. It's free at the point of delivery. Uh, and uh, it's very hard to get the dose wrong. And I think that's true. Actually, the meaning of life to me ultimately is is kindness. And and when you combine it with a scientific endeavor, if every dilemma that I'm faced with, I think intelligent kindness is the solution I'm about to propose. Is it intelligent and is it kind? And it has to tick both of those boxes. The things we can do as doctors that we can do but aren't necessarily kind and there are things that are kind that aren't always intelligent. Um, so intelligent kindness probably comes in there somewhere. But yeah. it's us as humans. The, the universe is essentially meaningless. It's us as humans that create meaning. And we do it through relationships and kindness, I think. Yeah. Sounds nice. Uh, any imminent future plans? And now you've managed to retire from the NHS. Have if, if um, you got any, any works in progress? I might go back to doing group consultations. I've asked, been asked to do my clangers in group consultations. So, you know, 50 yeah. people with diabetes or something, let's teach them about clangers. So I might go and do that, which actually suits me. Uh, so mm-hmm. that could be doing. Uh, How I Ruin Medicine is coming out on Radio 4 as part of the 75th anniversary celebrations of the NHS. Yeah. I'm working on a memoir, but there are hundreds of medical memoirs out at the moment. So I will probably write my memoir. I've written seven books already and, they, you know, they haven't sold like, Adam yeah. Kay's book, and he's rather cornered the market. Yeah. He has done very well, but sadly gave up the day job. And yeah. he may regret that a bit, I think. But uh, yeah, so don't give up the day job. Uh, okay. But it is okay to go part-time. Those are my two top tips. And uh, I guess there's, there's one last question for the audience. Is you had started off your career in comedy with Tony Gardner. Will there be a return of Struck Off and Die? So yeah. Tony and I may do something, maybe about growing old, um, maybe yeah. about assisted dying, maybe something controversial. I think we might actually. We uh, I, we slightly got the flavour for it. And if you listen to the Radio Four, how I ruin medicine, it's got some of Struck Off and Dice's greatest hits in. So I think, yeah, I think that may give us the impetus. So yeah, I hope it. I hope we could do something. I think I still think there's an audience out there for it. Yep, uh, audience of three. Well, you're one of them. You're one That's of them. That's right. There may be another two people watching this. So we get yeah. as long as we get three or more. Yeah. Yep. Well, thanks for what we can say. Yeah, I've had a had a great discussion there. Thank you for joining us today for the first episode of this Bayer funded Arna Horizon podcast. And we hope you're joining us again for the next episode. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>